Please, brothers and sisters, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we will be looking at Mark chapter 14 and verses 32 to 42. Mark chapter 14 and verses 32 to 42. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. Brothers and sisters, if you would then, please hear with me the reading of God's holy word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, Not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, suffering is a part of life. Uh, Pain and sickness is something that we all experience uh, to one degree or another. Although it seems as the older you get, uh, the more pain and, and sicknesses you have to endure. But what makes those painful and sometimes scary situations a little easier to get through is having someone by your side. Or maybe having a whole bunch of people by your side who are there to support you and to, and to lift your spirits and to do what they can to ease your discomfort. Knowing this then, and having been helped in our own times of, of pain and, and sickness, uh, it ought to cause us to, to sympathize with those in this world who have no one to do this for them. Right? The one who, who has no spouse, who has no children, who has no friends, who is laid up in the hospital bed, which means no visits for them. Right? It's, it's difficult enough to go through something like, like cancer. Right? But imagine going through cancer with no one there to be by your side. Right? How terrible, how lonely of an experience that must be. And yet I think it it might even be worse for the one who who is dealing with cancer and who has a spouse and who has children and who has people that they think are dear friends to them but who do not come with them to their appointments, 
or who never come to visit them while they are in their hospital beds. I think that might be worse. That, that would play upon one mentally, wouldn't it? Not only are you suffering from this debilitating disease, but the ones whom you love most in this world, who you thought and expected to be by your side throughout all of this, are demonstrating that they don't care about you at all or they're unconcerned with your condition and they're leaving you to fight this great battle all alone, all by yourself. And you may know people like this. You may know people who have nobody to be by their side in their darkest of times. And that ought to break our hearts, right? To know that there are are people in this world who experience that. Well, brothers and sisters, it ought to break our hearts even more than when we read our text today and we see what Jesus experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is here that Jesus arrives uh, to the foot of the Mount of Olives with his apostles. And it is here that Jesus comes in great anguish and great agony, saying that his soul is sorrowful even unto death. And all that his closest associates could do while he is in this agony and pain is sleep. They could not even keep their eyes open for Christ in his most distressing of times. He suffered and fought against great temptation in the garden. So much so that we're told in Luke's Gospel, he sweat droplets of blood while his apostles just lay their feet away in peaceful slumber. Jesus was left to fight this battle all alone with no love, no concern, no support from those who were his dearest associates and whom he is suffering for. Now, you know, brothers and sisters, we oftentimes speak so, so much so about the, the, the cross and the importance of the cross, how it is here that Christ has died for our sins. And rightfully so, we, 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 we should often speak about the cross and, and think about the cross. But what we also, I think, ought to start doing more often and speaking about more often and thinking about more often is what occurs here in the Garden of Gethsemane. For it is here that Jesus suffers immensely in his soul. It is here that he battles great temptation. And yet it is here that he overcomes. It is here that he is victorious, demonstrating absolute submission to his Father's will, avowing that he is resolute in offering himself up as that loving sacrifice to the Father for the sins of his people, which then enables Christ to go to the cross and to, to do those very acts which will bring about the salvation for all who believe. Right? It is in the Garden of Gethsemane that our Lord experiences the very toughest challenge of the entirety of His life leading up to the cross. But it is something, brothers and sisters, that Christ had to endure. And it is something that He had to overcome before He could be delivered up to death. Now we see then in verse 32... As Jesus came to Gethsemane, He says to eight of the eleven apostles that were with Him, sit here while I pray. Then in verse 33, we're told that He takes three with Him, Peter, James, and John. And as He takes them, He begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. And in verse 34, He says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now it's this statement, my, my soul is very sorrowful, that we want to look at, and which will be our first point this morning. Okay? 
So our first point is Jesus' sorrowful soul. Jesus' sorrowful soul. Okay? Now to say that Jesus' soul is sorrowful is to say that his soul was, was deeply grieved or deeply pained. In verse 35, we're told that Jesus actually falls to the ground and he prays that if it's possible that this hour might pass from him, saying in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It is here then, brothers and sisters, we see the, the reason why Jesus' soul is so very sorrowful. Right? The, the content of the prayer, the reason why He falls to the ground and prays to the Father is given to us. It's provided for us in His petition, which is, remove this cup from Me. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, the author speaks about this very moment when he says this, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. And so we see, brothers and sisters, it's, it's the cup or the contents of this cup which is at the very heart or at the very center of Jesus' pleas to His Father. And so we have to ask, what is this cup? What is the cup that Jesus is speaking about? Well, it's the portion or it's the measure of affliction that Jesus knows he must endure. Right? That is the cup. It's the measure of the affliction that Jesus knows that he is going to have to endure on behalf of sinners. And it's this language of, of the cup that we've heard once before, if you remember in Mark's Gospel. If you recall in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, James and John come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Right? And so we see here again this cup being referenced. And so we have to ask, what is in this cup, metaphorically speaking, that Jesus must drink that is causing him such anguish? and pain, and worry, and trouble. So much so that he asked that this hour might pass him by. Well, brothers and sisters, it's the great pain of knowing the suffering that he must endure. Right? It's, it's the great pain of knowing the, the beatings, the whippings, the bleeding, the, the crucifixion that he must endure, the, the nails being driven into his hands and into his feet. What is also causing him this great anguish and turmoil right, is, is knowing the great shame that he must undergo in being put to death like a terrible sinner and criminal being hung upon the cross publicly for all to see. Likewise, Jesus is in such anguish praying for this cup to pass because he knows that he must suffer greatly for the guilt of sin that is going to be laid upon his back this very day. And I don't think, brothers and sisters, we take enough time to really think about and consider what that must have been like for Christ. Right, we can look to a passage like Psalm 38, verse 4. This is what David says. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. The sin of one man was too heavy for one man to bear. Now consider 
Right? The sin of every man, woman, and child, past, present, and future, who will ever come to believe in Christ, being laid upon the back of Christ. And think about how heavy that must have weighed upon his mind. Another thing, brothers and sisters, I think that we forget is that Satan, to the degree that God allows him to, is tempting Jesus as he has complete access to him during this time. Right? Jesus recognizes that this will be the case. And he says in John chapter 14, verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Right? It is here in the Garden of Gethsemane that the, that roaring lion, Satan, and all of his demonic forces are coming upon Jesus. Right, pressuring him, tempting him, trying to get him to, to turn away, to, to turn his back to his mission, to, to turn his back on the, the will of the Father and open defiance for all to see. Right, what, what combat. Right, what a fight. What a battle that must have ensued there between the, the forces of evil and, and Christ in that garden that very night. And lastly, brothers and sisters, I think Jesus sees in this moment as he is in great anguish and terror, he sees his father sitting in that judgment seat. Right? He sees him in that judgment seat. And he knows that he is entering the tribunal of God, understanding that the vengeance of God is awaiting him. And that he will experience the fullness of God's wrath according to the measure of his cup. Right? All of these things are weighing heavy upon our Lord. Right? The, the physical pain of the cross, yes, it is horrific and it is terrible, but we need to recognize that the cross, the physical pain of the cross, pales in comparison to the sufferings of Christ's soul. It pales in comparison to the sufferings of his soul. Right? The, the one who knew no sin was made to be sin. Right? The one who knew no sin was made to be a curse for us. And to take upon himself the penalty for our sin. Not that he sinned. We always must remember that. Right? Jesus takes upon himself the guilt of our sin. And it's that guilt of sin which begins to weigh heavy upon our Lord's heart in the Garden of Gethsemane this night. As one author puts it, only imagine personified holiness. He's talking about Jesus. Right? Only imagine personified holiness placed in the midst of a pool of this world's corruption. This is what happened to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? He is placed in a pool of this world's corruption and he, he feels it coming on all sides of him. So how could that not cause Christ to be seized with horror right? knowing what it is that awaits him? And so, brothers and sisters, this ought to cause us to see, if you do not see already, the great weight and burden that your sin has placed upon Christ. If you are a believer this day, that pain, that anguish, that terror, that misery that Christ was in, was in because of you. And so, though even though this world mocks sin, even though this world takes sin lightly, even though this world calls evil good and good evil, we must not. We must always recognize 
the evil nature of sin and flee from it and have nothing to do with it. And desire. right? Seeing what, what sin did to our Savior, seeing what sin caused Him to endure, it ought to cause us to desire, right? to, 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 per, to proceed and to progress every day in our sanctification. Which means putting off sin. Putting off that sin that sent Christ to the cross. And putting on righteousness and holiness every day. Right? While the world tramples underfoot the Son of God. And while the world profanes the blood of the covenant. We shall not. We in response to Christ's sufferings. Need to take seriously our sin. Even if that means the world hates us. and The world mocks us. And the world despises us and they make fun of us. We ought to prefer that to being caught in being engaged in the sin of this world. We can point the finger at the world. We can say, look at the wickedness and the vileness of the world. Look at their sin. But what good does that do us today? We need to reflect upon our own sin this morning. And so I ask you, where in your life does sin still reside? Where in your life does sin still reside? Is it in the language that you use? Is it in uh, your being quick-tempered in nature? Maybe not self-controlled. Is it a sexual sin, perhaps? Is it greed? Is it laziness? Whatever it is, know that Christ was suffering in Gethsemane because of that. And if that does not move your soul to immediately depart with your sin, I don't know what will. Because the love that Christ showed you in Gethsemane is the love that we need to be modeling each and every day toward our Savior. And it will not be easy. It will be a struggle. But brothers and sisters, Jesus provides for us in this text a remedy against dealing with temptation. A remedy against dealing with those times in which you are suffering, in which you are feeling anguish and agony and worry and fear and feeling defeated. He demonstrates for us the remedy of this. And what is that? It's to turn to God in prayer. It's to turn to God in prayer. And this takes us to our second point this morning, which is Jesus' recourse in response to His sorrowful soul. Jesus' recourse in response to his sorrowful soul. Now in verse 32, we see that Jesus' reason for coming into the garden that day is to pray. In verse 35, after saying his soul is sorrowful, he falls to the ground and prays. Three times, in fact, we're told, he prays in the garden. If this teaches us anything, brothers and sisters, right? it is that when we feel weakness, whether that is physical weakness or spiritual weakness, we are to turn to the God who strengthens and pray. We ought to teach all of us that. Right? Jesus models for us how prayer is the great remedy, how prayer is the great medicine for the weary soul in order to strengthen us. We have to learn that from this text this morning. This is the same thing that James commends to us in James chapter 5, verse 13. What does James say? Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. And yet in Jesus' prayer, what we also have to see is that although he asked for this cup to pass him by, throughout this entire experience, Jesus is submitting 
himself to the will of the Father. Okay? There is no mixture of sin. There is no taint of impurity in any of the words that our Lord speaks. This is important to understand. If you had a loved one who was suffering greatly and you prayed that the Lord would heal them, there's nothing wrong with that. Because, brothers and sisters, we don't know the secret will of God. And so, if you pray something opposite the secret will of God, if it, if it is a good prayer, the preservation of life, perhaps, that is not sin. There is nothing wrong with that prayer. But oftentimes, brothers and sisters, what we have to see is that we don't come to God in prayer as Jesus comes to God in prayer here in full submission to His Father's will, does, do we? Right? Oftentimes, we come to, to God in prayer asking for things that He never promised us and expecting Him to give that to us and become angry if He doesn't. Right? We come to God in prayer wanting God to set aside His own glory in order to answer our prayers. And when we do that, that is sinful. When we come to God in prayer without first considering His own glory and majesty, that too is sinful. But we need to see that is not what Jesus does here. Right? He says, let this cup pass from me, but He does not stop there. Right? He continues on in His prayer and we see at the end of verse 36, not what I will, but what you will. Right? Jesus' prayer is restrained. Right? Jesus would like His prayer to be answered, but He only wants it to be answered if it is agreeable to the will of the Father. What we need to see here is that Jesus brings all of His thoughts, He brings all of His emotions, all of His feelings into obedience to God. And this, brothers and sisters, is how we too must come to God in prayer. Right? Restrained. Bringing all of our feelings, thoughts, and emotions Right into obedience to God before we approach His throne of grace in prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus Himself teaches us how we are to pray and how we are to, to look to the, to the will of the Father in our prayers. Right? He says that we are to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And Jesus is no hypocrite. And He models that for us. He's the perfect example of prayer here in Jesus' prayer. And look what resulted from it. In the parallel account of this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22 and verse 43, we're told that after Jesus says, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, thy will be done, that an angel comes and he strengthens Jesus. That's the result of Jesus' prayer. He is strengthened by the Father. Now what I want us to also see here in our text and in the example of Jesus' prayer is what happens when one is spiritually alert. We need to see the importance of being spiritually alert. What happens to the one who walks ever so closely with God? What we see is that they know when they are starting to come under temptation. They know when they are starting to feel spiritually weak. And as soon as they recognize that, they know to turn to God in prayer. Jesus demonstrates that for us in our text today. But when we turn to God in prayer, we must do so, like Jesus, in total dependence and complete submission to His will. For in doing so, He is is teaching us something in these moments. This is what the author to the Hebrews tells us again in 
chapter 5, verse 8 of Jesus as mediator. He tells us that he learned obedience through what he suffered. Right? Jesus learned obedience in what is occurring in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see in our text today, as God remains silent, and it ought to pop out at you as we read our text today. If you remember when Jesus is baptized, if you remember when He's on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father speaks, doesn't He? He says, This is My Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, now the Son is on His knees before the Father in prayer, crying out. And in return, all there is is silence. Silence from His Father. But He is strengthened by an angel whom the Father sends. And now what? What does Jesus learn? He knows. I must drink of this cup. This is the Father's will. And so now he voluntarily and he willingly submits himself ready to go into death, which is why then he says in verse 41 and 42, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, I want us to see the very opposite. Of what, it, of what happens to the one who does not watch over their souls and the one who is sleeping instead of praying. Right In verse 37, after Jesus leaves uh, Peter, James, and John, His most dearest apostles, the ones that He took with Him on the Mount of Transfiguration, the ones whom He allowed to behold His glory, when He returns to them in verse 37, what are they doing? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. They're not watching. They're not praying. And so he says to them in verse 37, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Then he warns them in verse 38, saying, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, wouldn't you think upon hearing this rebuke from their Lord that the next time he returned, they would be wide awake watching over their souls and praying. We'd all be wrong. Because what are we told? In verse 40, He returns and they are sleeping. And we're told He returns once more in verse 41. A third time and they are sleeping again. They have opportunity after opportunity to watch over their souls and to pray and to be prepared for what is about to occur. They had opportunity to go to the Lord in prayer to be strengthened. They had opportunity to go to Him in prayer and pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. But what do they do? They waste these precious moments in slumber. We need to see that not only were they physically asleep, but they likewise were spiritually asleep. They showed no care and no concern over their souls. And what happens as a result? Look at verse 50 of chapter 14. Look at verse 50 with me. We're told, and they all left him and fled. Here's the result. They all left him and fled. The spirit gave way to the flesh. Their flesh was weak. And because during these moments in the garden, they did nothing to strengthen themselves, they fell into sin. These were the ones, remember from last week, Peter especially, 
who said, Lord, even if everyone denies you and forsakes you, I will not. Didn't all of them then say, last week we read, Lord, we will die for you before we ever deny you. And now when it comes time to do that very thing, they are not prepared, they are not ready because they have been asleep. Brothers and sisters, do not think for one moment that you will ever be able to withstand sin and temptation. Right? Don't think that you, when temptation comes, you won't rush immediately into it if you are not daily watching and praying. We need to continually be watching and praying and doing both of those things, not just one or the other, both. You cannot be watching over your soul if you're not praying. And if you're not praying, you definitely can't be watching over your soul. And prayer is a means that God has given us by which we can turn to Him and He will strengthen us just as He has done Jesus in our text today so that He might withstand the onslaught and the temptation from Satan. And in doing so, what do we see here? What do we see in our text? That Jesus gains victory over His foes in the garden. And this leads us to our third and our final point. Jesus' victory in Gethsemane. Jesus' victory in Gethsemane. Now in this passage, brothers and sisters, what we need to see is far more than what just appears to be on the surface. In this garden, and it's a garden, in John chapter 18, verse 1, this is what John tells us. He tells us this is a garden that Jesus enters into. We need to remember then that he enters into this garden as the second Adam. He enters into the garden as the second Adam. This is the the language of of Romans 5, right? Romans 5, verse 14. Adam was was a type of who was to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. The first Adam became a living being. The second Adam or the last Adam became a life giving spirit. In verse 47 of 1 Corinthians 15. The first man was from the earth. The second man is from heaven. So there are important connections that we need to see here in our text today. Right? Jesus does not wander into the Garden of Gethsemane by chance, but rather it's by divine plan. Right? The Garden is the place where the first Adam fell and sin enters into the world. Well, it's the second garden here that Jesus enters into, that he chooses as his starting point to to bring about the redemption of fallen man. In the first garden, Adam was overthrown by the devil. In the second garden, the second Adam overcomes the devil. In the first garden, death enters the world. In the second garden, Jesus will begin to restore us from death to life through the obedience to his Father. In the first garden, Adam brought bondage to sin. But what happens in the second garden? Jesus brings about freedom and liberty to those who have been in bondage to sin. In the first garden, Adam failed to obey the will of God. In the second garden, the second Adam obeys the will of God perfectly. Christ enters into this garden of Gethsemane today on this Friday. Because he has come to bring about what the first Adam lost in the first garden, which is the ability to enter into heavenly glory with our Lord. In addition to this, we must see that here in the garden is the culmination of the entirety of our Lord's life. 
right here in the garden comes the culmination of everything that's been leading up to this moment. Right Before he was even born, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and tells Joseph, don't be afraid, uh, take Mary as your wife. What she has in her stomach has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to a son. You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself understands his mission. This is why at age 12 he's sitting under the feet of rabbis at the temple, or at the synagogue, excuse me. And, and when his mother comes and finds him, he says, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Right? Here in the garden is where his baptism, where he was commissioned for his ministry, is now confirmed. Right here in the Garden of Gethsemane is where all these prophetic anticipations are leading towards. To what he says here in verse 36, not what I will, but what you will. In the face of temptation, brothers and sisters, in the face of all that Satan is trying to do during this time of anguish and agony and emotional discomfort, Jesus says yes to the Father. In this time of agony and discomfort, Jesus says yes to His mission. He says yes to the will of God. He says, yes, I will save My people from their sins. In the face of all that is going on, He says, yes, Father, I will drink the cup. Here then, brothers and sisters, is why in the face of such terror that we've just been reading about, without hesitation, Jesus can say, it is enough. Rise up. See that my betrayer is at hand. It's because He's overcome Satan in the garden. He has said yes to the will of His Father and now is ready to walk courageously toward His death. He does not turn away. He does not walk the opposite way. He walks directly towards his captors. And what we also need to see is not only does he walk directly towards his captors, but he picks the place that he knows his captors will find him. We're told this in John chapter 18, verse 2. Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so we need to see that, that this is a voluntary offering up of himself. But this is the only way that Jesus could ever be the Savior of sinners. It had to be a willing, voluntary sacrifice and submission to the will of His Father. And this is what we have here in our text today. This is why we're told in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal life for all who believe. But brothers and sisters, let us never forget that the victory which Christ won and the salvation that He has procured for us did not come without great struggle and a, and a great and mighty fight. One that we have read about today in the Garden of Gethsemane. It meant Christ bearing this great shame before all of men. It meant Christ being alienated from the Father upon the cross. It meant a sorrowful soul leading up to the hours before His death. Yet, brothers and sisters, if you are a believer here today, He has done all of those things for you. And so let us not become indifferent to our Lord's sufferings. Let us not be unmoved by our Lord's pain. But instead, out of love and gratitude, 
Right? Let us let this cause us to, to seek to obey the will of the Father. And one of the ways, brothers and sisters, that we obey the will of the Father is by daily watching and praying. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your words, for they are words of life. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to think more about the, the Garden of Gethsemane. That, Lord, we would ponder and meditate upon the, the agonies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that that would motivate us to part with sin immediately and to uh, cling to Christ and to his righteousness and to pray daily uh, that we would be mortifying the deeds of the flesh and be uh, sowing to the Spirit. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would illuminate our minds this day, that, Lord, you would press and implant these words upon our heart, and that, Lord, we would go forth this week uh, exercising ourselves in the things that we have learned. And we ask this all in Christ's name we pray. Amen.